Mm-hmm. The only thing I've ever associated President's Day with is like TV commercials for car sales. Yep. But we get it off for some reason. <laughs> yeah, my wife works for a bank. She got it off. Um, mm-hmm. None of the places that I go for work, they're all production facilities, yeah. get it off. Yeah, so yeah, I don't yeah, get yeah. it off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was very strange. <laughs> I mean, I'll take it, but uh, yeah. Definitely a weird one. Like it, it, it'd be like if we got like flag day off. <laughs> <laughs> well, they should like... do that. We should all get all the holidays off. They should all be like, <laughs> like the religious holidays of the medieval era, but secular where it's like, I'm, I'm sorry. It's international Samba appreciation day. Nobody can work. Oh, this is like, <laughs> so, uh, over the past like 20 years, they've created a, a day for literally everything. Yeah. There's, <laughs> yes. Uh, correct. cat's day, bagel day, yeah. muffin day, any other type of food day. And, and yeah, we should just get them all off. Yeah. These corporations <laughs> are allowed to keep making up bullshit days to try and profit off of them. As long as they're willing to accept that nobody's going to work on those days. Well, because, see, this is the thing we keep having, you know, we keep talking about all these stories where unions are winning things like Juneteenth or even having to go back to win like uh, MLK Junior Day as mm-hmm. like a, an official holiday. And that's all great. Like it's an, it's a yet another reason on the incredibly long list why everybody should have a union. But, you know, I think if we're going to really have that labor upsurge we're looking for, I think we need to shift into higher gear here. I think we <laughs> need to have unions bargaining for holidays that don't exist yet. Like. Oh, let's let's just start making union feast days because like one of the things we talked about is, you know, we always want to have the 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 union should be as integrated into its community as possible to Mm -hmm. make it a stronger organization. And what better way than if you just create a whole holiday for everybody? (laughs) That's smart. So you like depending on what where you are you will have a holiday for that area but then you know who knows that might turn into like a cultural icon and spread to other places and and yeah well it's like you know if one union figures out a particularly good holiday and it's get everybody likes it they're like not only is this a great day off we also are enjoying the traditions that we just made up I imagine that much like trying to get everybody lined up on that May 1st contract expiration date, we might actually see some movement towards other unions being like, yeah, why not throw uh, International Silly Walk Day into the contract? <laughs> we want April 12th off, motherfucker. <laughs> well, I mean, look, we you know we only get one Labor Day a year, but everybody's laboring every day. So maybe we should have Labor Day too. <laughs> That's fair. Although we get two Labor Days, a real one and a fake one. Don't forget that. Well, yeah, but we don't get the real one officially off, so there you go. (laughs) Well, I don't get the fake one off either, so... (laughs) (laughs)
All right. Well, on the note of bickering about holidays, welcome to Work Stoppage, everybody, your favorite labor podcast. My name is John. I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported show, so thank you so much if you support us on Patreon. It really does go a long way. Hop in the Discord if you're not already in there. Message me on Patreon if you need stickers, and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you think it will help the show. I don't know if it will. It's a mystery. <laughs> I mean, it's. Uh, I think it's more like common knowledge it, it, than it is like uh, an actual scientific fact. So it's like, like it uh, what's it's, good for the goose is good for the gander. It's just a thing people say. Yeah, yeah. And so like probably true, yeah, but you also know, like, you know like, circumstantial, like Happy Honda days. Yeah, <laughs> another day that workers deserve off. That's, That's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> sorry boss there's a car sale i'm not working today are you going to buy a car no <laughs> <laughs> but we're celebrating <laughs> that's right that's right all right um, well we're just gonna start off with a real quick fuck you to amazon who this week joined spacex and trader joe's in the most recent lawfare campaign against the nlrb their suit claims that the nlrb's judicial power violates articles one two and three of the constitution as well as the fifth and seventh amendments oh. that is uh, apparently like it's just the most illegal organization that exists apparently um <laughs> <laughs> and we could go over every detail, but I don't think that that's very important. Really, the summary is they argue that the NLRB, which is a part of the executive branch, uh, should not have the ability to adjudicate or have any sort of uh, judgment powers and uh, basically just be a collector of paperwork. This is so funny because it's not exactly the same thing. Uh, but when you have to leverage this many accusations of unconstitutionality against an organization, it starts to resemble kettle logic, which, if you're not familiar with it, is when you bar a character borrows a kettle from another person, and then when asked to return it, they say, "I never borrowed a kettle." And act, or rather, when the when they return it and it's damaged, um, they say, "Oh, I never borrowed your kettle." Also, it was like that when I borrowed it. Um, <laughs> you know, also there's a third one, but it's like every explanation that you give contradicts every other explanation. So even if one of them were true, you're still obviously lying. Oh uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, that was like what I, sorry. No, you know what? Honestly, what it makes me think of is one of the various times at which, uh, some of, uh, Jimmy Hoffa's more colorful associates were brought up before the courts on charges of tax evasion on their illegal gains. And they said, well, well, how could I owe taxes on these? I got these illegally. Oh, yeah. Those aren't tax. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just thought was an incredible defense. But <laughs> no, I mean, this whole thing is, is also wild because I also think that it's so illustrative of the ruling class never being able to be satisfied even when they have things going the way they want them. Mm -hmm. Because like, this is the thing. It's like, they're going after the NLRB as if the NLRB is some major threat to their profits. Meanwhile, you know, we have 400 unionized Starbucks with zero contracts. And how long has it been since JFK unionized? This is in no way a shade on any of the folks doing that incredibly important organizing work. But just to say that, like, the modern NLRB is not constraining monopoly capital in any way. And yet still, 
They just can't stomach the idea that they would have to even give up a fig leaf of, 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 of their power, their authority, their control over their businesses. And so they're trying to tear the whole damn system down, which is just like, buddy, you think we got a polarized, high contradiction society now? Wait till you return us to the Lochner era. And like you decertify half the existing unions and suddenly all the people who had gotten kind of just complacent about having a union contract lose it and are like, wait, whoa, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. Like, I also think that like the, the one of the main motivators is that they don't like being told that they're doing illegal things, which is like the Starbucks argument. And so they uh, have to figure out how to not do illegal things by making all the things they do legal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose that's, that's definitely also a part of it, but it's just, I don't know. I just think it's wild. Like, yeah, you just, in some way it's a, to me, a bit shades of like the overturning of Roe, because obviously like that in the short term is a huge conservative victory, but I personally think in the long term is going to end up being a strategic error on their part, because, I mean, we've already seen that galvanize people all over the country. You've seen multiple states where the legislators tried to, like, immediately then ban abortion only to have the, the masses turn around and enshrine abortion rights into law. Mm-hmm. And that wouldn't have happened, you know, if they had not tried to push that contradiction even farther. And so now you want to do that with class contradictions, <laughs> Uh, in addition to, you know, all of the, the patriarchal contradictions with, with reproductive rights, like, I don't know, I feel like if you keep having an institution like the Supreme Court that people have absolutely no input on whatsoever, that just keeps taking away gigantic right after gigantic right, uh, millions of people may start to decide that that's not a legitimate institution. Well, mm-hmm. uh, speaking of millions of people deciding that things are not legitimate, uh, <laughs> we wanted to follow up on workers' resistance to the genocide in Palestine. So as it continues, and we see imagery of Israel's fascist regime continuing to flood our social media feeds with some of the most awful images and stories in modern history, unions have been called to do more than just call for a ceasefire. And while many unions have called for a ceasefire, fire, mostly due to rank-and-file demand, in fact, directly contradicting their national leadership in many cases, that same rank-and-file is pushing for unions to take the next steps and divest from Israel entirely. One of the strongest statements this week comes from Jewish members of the Association of Legal Aid Attorneys, UAW Local 2325, where they laid out a 12-point statement clarifying the racist and anti-Semitic nature of Zionism, along with strong demands for the government and the UAW in their last point. That point reads, We demand that Congress overturn House Resolution 894, which states that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, an immediate permanent ceasefire, an end to all military, economic, and diplomatic aid to Israel. One democratic Palestine, from the river to the sea, with freedom and equal rights for all, and right of return for all Palestinian refugees. Which I've got to say, from all of the statements that we've gotten from union members, union leadership, whatever, this is by far the most comprehensive that I've seen. The most and clear. in the rest of the and in the rest of the points, they talk a lot about how um, these Jewish members are anti-Zionist, not in spite of you know being Jewish, but because of it, mm-hmm. and and how that being a really important point. And they go over so many other things, uh, and so 
uh, really, I, I think that we should encourage people to check out the statement of UAW Local 2325, uh, the member, the Jewish members of the Association of Legal Aid Attorneys, because it, it's pretty comprehensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been really good. Well, I mean, there's been a few of these uh, like local statements that have been really, really good. Like I know like the UE and UFCW, like Local 3000 came out with very solid ones pretty, pretty quickly. And so I know we've, uh, you know, pointed out some of the uh, weaknesses in a few of the major ones that have come out lately. But I do think that it's always good here to highlight that, you know, while it may have taken longer than it should have to move the leadership in some cases, like there really is an actual rank and file movement for like an actual militant anti-colonial struggle here. And, and that that's something that, you know, obviously we should continue to encourage and support as much as possible, because if we've already been able to move, you know, the AFL CIO to a position of even just a mediocre ceasefire fire call when that's an organization that used to support every coup the CIA did, like then if we keep up these struggles, we can move the leadership to an even stronger position. Well, I mean, that's like the main lesson we learned from modern unions and the history of unions and just worker organization in general is that when you start to win, that doesn't mean you should slow down. It means mm-hmm. you should step on the gas. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, and I mean, speaking to the to that rank-and-file movement as well, in the UAW, there is a group called UAW Labor for Palestine and they've actually, you know, been pushing since the UAW has a lot of arms like workers in the UAW uh, for them to actually like make some changes to, you know, whether or not they're even making these arms cr- created specifically for Israel or not. And in a statement they put out, it said, uh, quote, If UAW leaders decide to, they could, tomorrow, form a national organizing campaign to educate and mobilize rank and file towards the UAW's own ceasefire and just transition call. They could hold weapons shop town halls in every region. They could connect their small cadre of volunteer organizers like us to the people we are so keen to organize with. They could send some of their staff to help with this work. End quote. And that sort of plan laid out right there in front shows that there is actually a like a, a cohesive plan from groups like Labor for Palestine of how you're going to actually get the end to the arms manufacturing for Israel and, and meet other sorts of demands outside of even just the divestment. Yeah. And there was a really good um, article this week in uh jacobin i think it was from uh jeff shirky uh yeah which was talking about the goal of you know now we've kind of we we, we've we've hit we've hit all the ceasefire resolution goals pretty much once you hit the afl cio itself that's you Mm -hmm. you've 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 made the you've reached at least some level of hegemony on that position. And so the next step, obviously, beyond that is to translate that into more material specifics. And obviously, efforts like those uh, those calls from the legal aid attorneys is one, but but more of these direct actions like that we've seen from so many workers around the world, uh, like we've seen uh, 
obviously we've talked before about the workers in Barcelona, the workers in Genoa, the workers in Belgium, mm-hmm. uh, but also the workers in South Africa and, and, and all sorts of places over the global South. But there was an, I know there was another announcement. I didn't put this in the notes, but I, uh, this weekend where, uh, the, I believe they're they're called the Water Transport Union, but I think it, that that's they're like a, a like a longshore union um, in of Indian workers announced that they would no longer load uh, anything. I I don't remember if there's any weapons or any goods uh, total that were destined for Israel, but it was one of the two. And so yeah, being able to move beyond just calling for a ceasefire, uh, especially because. Obviously, uh, you know, the Biden regime has not listened to those calls, but moving those into like material disruption of the ability of the empire to provide the weapons for this genocide is definitely uh, a a step that, you know, now we need to be moving towards. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, as a step in that direction, we have seen many national unions form a coalition called the National Labor Network for Ceasefire. Uh, Participating in this are the American Postal Workers Union, the Association of Flight Attendants, the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, the National Education Association, National Nurses United, the UAW, the UE, and about 200 local unions and labor organizations. While the messaging is a little lacking with the framing of the ceasefire demands being between Hamas and Israel, it is good to see such a broad coalition of labor fighting for a ceasefire and aid to the Palestinian people. And I mean, like, you know, we talk about on this show, we would have liked to have seen that happen faster. But honestly, in some respects, this is the kind of issue that, like, I don't know if we necessarily would have seen this much interunion communication if they hadn't had something like this to kind of coalesce around. Um, Mm -hmm. which is an interesting dynamic in a very uh, bad situation. But in Canada as well, we saw a coalition of six national unions representing over two million workers who have called on the federal government there to reinstate funding for UNRWA following the government's entire withdrawal of funding to the important aid program. The withdrawal of funding in the first place shows Canada's complicity with genocide in uncritically acting on questionable information that 12 of the 30,000 workers in UNRWA had ties to the October 7th Palestinian resistance action, regardless of if this would be condemnable in the first place or not. So again, this is an accusation that is not necessarily true, not wouldn't necessarily be bad if it were true, and yet uh, is enough of a flimsy excuse for the genocidal settler colonial nation of Canada to go ahead and revoke their support for this kind of aid. Well, and it was a, it was also like it was a coordinated move by a co- collection of U.S. vassal states to mm-hmm. all withdraw funding at the same time, immediately following the ICJ ruling. Like it's the whole, and and this like I I know that this like sounds melodramatic, but like the UNRWA is like one of those institutions that is like a one of the few international law bodies that like is like integral to the the Palestinian. The, the existence of like Palestine in, mm-hmm. in any sort of international legal sense and in attempting to get rid of the UNRWA has been a long-term goal of the fascist leadership of Israel as well as of course it's it's backers in the United States um and and this coordinated effort by western governments to do this in the middle of a genocide while you know like Israel is is bombarding you know the Palestinian people is literally part of an attempt to solve 
uh, in giant quotes, the Palestinian question. Yeah. Like that, like that, <laughs> I know that sounds like very over the top for removing funding from a UN agency, but like the vast majority of like the schools <laughs> in occupied Palestine tend to be funded through the UNRWA because of the blockade and all these other things. And so by attempting to get rid of that, it's the same thing as blowing up all of the hospitals, all of the universities, all of the infrastructure in Gaza. It is an attempt to make life impossible. And it, this withdrawal of funding in an attempt to destroy the agency over accusations that no one believes outside of, you know, the, the governing class in the U.S. empire of a, a crime of being part of a resistance to fascist occupation. So... Again, like the, uh, this whole thing is monstrous and should be uh, the sort of thing that uh, I, I think helps rally folks to understand that it's like it's not so much that we have individually bad leaders <laughs> at this particular time, uh, but that the system under which we are operating is fundamentally inhuman and, yep. and needs to be uh, uh, thrown in the dustbin of history. <laughs> Yep. Well, and further to that point, I mean, uh, and as we have seen every week, but we have seen a massive amount of actions around the U.S. recently calling for people to have, quote unquote, eyes on Rafa, which is where about 1.4 million people have been forced into about 55 square, 55 square kilometers, which would make it one of the most densely populated locations on Earth. And unsurprisingly, with no other place for Palestinians to go, Israel has begun attacks on Rafa, continuing to show blatantly its genocidal intent and doing what many commentators who tried to let everybody know what was going to happen indicated was going to happen at the very, very start of this Israeli military campaign, which is that they were just going to push them into smaller and smaller areas and then kill them there. Uh, so we do encourage listeners to join any actions that they can that protest the genocide in occupied Palestine and join organizations that are fighting to end it and any uh, war activities uh, around the world, of course. Um, the United States imperial machine is not just limited to uh, occupied Palestine, but that is where it is at its most intense right now. Yeah, yeah definitely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, staying on the, uh, the internationalist uh, line here, mm -hmm. uh, we've actually got a, a, I guess technically this is a very long-term follow-up of one right. of the, <laughs> the the first major international stories we ever covered on the show, the epic struggle by literally hundreds of millions uh, in India the, by the, the farmers against the neoliberal farm laws that would have you know, made a horrible situation for folks facing extreme poverty even worse and, 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 and really helped to consolidate the takeover of agriculture in India by like major corporate, uh, agribusiness. And so that was a, you know, an epic class struggle that was, uh, you know, at least in part a victory by, by the farmers forcing the government to roll those farm laws back. But of course, you know, as long as, as the system of capitalism remains dominant, the struggle always continues. Yeah, I mean, like, we've been running this show for, like, three or more years at this point, and like you pointed out, this is one of the very first international stories that we ever covered, and we're still covering it today. Yeah, uh, because this, this week, the struggle continued, where 10,000 farmers marched on New Delhi to demand that the government uphold its uh, end of the agreement that came out of those massive 
uh, nationwide farmers protests. And so these farmers have assembled a 12-point list of demands centering on debt relief and minimum support prices for staple crops. Basically, that what that means is that, you know, one of the primary buyers for basic crops in pretty much any country, but also specifically in India, is the government. Because, you know, one of the things that the government does as far as its role in the economy is maintaining stable prices for basic, very basic goods, especially food. So wheat is, is always one of the basic things that, you know, the government wants to keep a price there. The U.S. spends a huge amount of money on corn subsidies. Mm-hmm. Um, and cheese. Uh, Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Isn't the, isn't there aren't there like isn't there a national cheese reserve in like yeah, Missouri pa- or something? They're partly the kept in a caves? gigantic cave. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. other there's other installations that hold the cheese as well, but the most notable one is a series of caves that the government keeps cheese in. Yeah. <laughs> but so all that to say that basically, you know, because the government is such a big buyer of these goods, what price the government buys those things at uh, plays a huge role in the livelihoods of the farmers. And so one of the key demands coming out of the basically to be the next stage in the struggle for the farmers out of that epic struggle two years ago was the fight for a like stable minimum support price that would be pegged to inflation. So basically essentially like providing a minimum wage more or less like in function for the farmers. So Mm -hmm. basically the idea would be to not to guarantee, you know, profit, but to guarantee that you can, you know, keep going, keep farming. Because again, especially agriculture, you can have wild variation because of weather, because of all sorts of different seasonal conditions. And so it's one of the those professions that has a huge amount of risk associated with it. Well, and, and yet uh, at the same time is providing something that everyone needs all the time to eat. <laughs> exactly. Well, and also like it's a very much a double-edged sword for farmers, particularly in largely agricultural economies, because if, even if you happen to have a good year where you grow lots of wheat or corn or radishes or whatever the hell you grow, that means that everybody else in your region who grows that same thing probably also had a good year. And now the price of that item is going to go down. So there's always going to be an economic incentive for the primary buyer of a product to fuck you unless there is some kind of protection in place for that product's prices. And it's also important to remember that when large agribusiness comes in, they do their best to monopolize an industry and drive the prices through the floor in order to to make it so that like small farms can't survive. And that's something that has happened in India. And one of the main goals of the government through the neoliberal programs is to bring in these kind of Americanized factory farms, which then, you know, make it so that these, you know, lifelong and generations, uh, you know, long uh, farmers no longer have the ability to sustain themselves on what they've been able to do so before, which they should be able to, especially with a incredibly important cro- uh, important uh, product like food. Yeah, well, I mean, like uh, we've seen situations devolve into violence over things like this in countries like South Africa, for instance. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, that transition results in things like what we have in the U.S. where like four companies control the entire supply of meat. Mm-hmm. It's like Tyson, Purdue, Cargill, and um, what's the other one? Uh, JB or something. Um, yeah. And, and Bill anyway. Gates owns like 40% of the farmland that they rent from him. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, that's obviously exactly what these farmers are are trying to fight back against. Basically trying to make it so that as a small farmer, you can live and exist and and pass your farm down to your in your family and, and, and maintain your way of life. 
And, you know, they, their argument is that without a minimum support price from the government, they are far too vulnerable to the ups and downs of, of not only the market, but also the weather, which is especially more difficult now with climate crisis going on. And so in order to just maintain the existence of small farmers, they need these things like minimum support price. And they point to the fact that over 100,000 farmers have committed suicide in just the last decade due to poverty, which is uh, horrifying and just you know, underlines how bad this crisis is and how needed things like a minimum support price would be. And following the epic strikes two years ago, the Indian government said that they would negotiate such minimum prices, but uh, unsurprisingly from the Modi government, uh, so far have refused to do so. That's more so, people than live in Kalamazoo, Michigan, for reference. That's like if a mid-sized city was just wiped off the map by the situation of uh, agricultural poverty yeah yeah it's horrifying uh and that's you know that's on top of things like you know all the problems with patented seeds and mm -hmm. and, and all the and fertilizers and all these like uh, specially tailored crop it, yeah it's a nightmare um and so Farmers are also pushing, though, in addition to basic debt relief, basic demands for minimum support price, also to basically say, look, you know, we're also workers, and so we should have the same rights as, as other workers, and so we should have things like pensions, and you should also have more regulation so that companies that s sell us what they claim are good, you know, fertilizer products or other sorts of farm goods, uh, that those actually have to be checked by the government because I guess a big problem that they run into is a lot of like fake agricultural goods with all these like scam artists who will go around selling people what they claim is, you know, fertilizer or seeds or other sorts of things. And it's just bullshit. Uh, and, and I guess that's been basically completely let go and unregulated in India. And in, so in addition to that, that one of the other th key things, and I think we've mentioned this before with some of the, the previous protests, was a rollback of the move by the state to privatize India's electricity supply. Because what's resulted from doing that is, unsurprisingly, a huge spike in electricity prices, which then leads to reducing the profit margins that these farmers have even more, to making it even more unsustainable for them to be able to run their farms. And so uh, this past Tuesday, February 13th, over 10,000 farmers under the banner of the Kisan Mazdur Morcha, the Peasant Worker Front, and the Samyukta Kisan Morcha, covering over 150 farmers unions, began a march from Punjab to New Delhi. And they were met at the border between Punjab and Haryana states with uh, mass police repression, including uh, barbed wire, concrete barricades, and widespread deployment of tear gas to disperse the march. Uh, police arrested several farmers, seized vehicles, and shut down mobile internet in the area to make it more difficult for farmers to communicate. And New Delhi has actually suspended the right of free assembly in the capital through the end of March uh, as part of their crackdown to try and prevent these protests, which to me just speaks to like how spooked they are after the success of, of the massive protests from two years ago, where they're just like, this is, you know, a relatively small 10,000 farmers compared to before. And they're like, no, 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 we can't let this happen. We lost last time. We can't have that happen again. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think that the if they're going to go about this uh, repression, that you're not going to just see way more people mm -hmm. show up in the streets for the next one. 
Yeah, exactly. And so one thing that I did think was really interesting uh, when I was reading, you know, about this in, and this is all, by the way, coming out of um, a couple articles in uh, People's Dispatch and, and from News Click, but they were talking about how the police have been using drones to launch tear gas at the marching farmers and that that's created like a weird, like sort of like constitutional crisis almost between the governments of Haryana and Punjab states. Cause I guess the Haryana police have been very aggressive and they're like pursuing people over the state border with the drones. So like the government of Punjab state has been like, Hey, stop flying your drones into our airspace. And so <laughs> you're getting like the two repressive apparatuses arguing with each other. And Meanwhile, the farmers responded with the exact sort of creativity you would expect and have actually managed to down some of the police drones by flooding the sky above the march with kites and tangling the drones up in them. Oh, hell yeah. That's badass. <laughs> yeah, I, I read that detail. I was like, damn, that's incredibly cool. <laughs> um Unfortunately, though, uh, the police have continued to step up their oppression. And on Wednesday, uh, police added water cannons and rubber bullets to their assault on the marchers, basically really just saying, no, you, you don't actually have any right to freedom of assembly or protest or anything like that. Um, and so in the meantime, negotiations have continued between the farmers and the Ministry of Agriculture in their like official uh, government negotiations. Um, and I thought this was a really good quote from... Sarwan Singh Pandair, who's the uh, general secretary of the Kisan Mazdur Sangarsh Committee, who told reporters, quote, when no one listened to us, then moving forward with the protest became a matter of compulsion. There's a list of over 100 people who have been injured. The whole country is watching. If this is the way that this government wants to treat the country's farmers and farm laborers, then the 140 crore people, 1.4 billion, of India should consider again that we do not want this kind of government, end quote. That's right. Hell yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, talking about farmers, I mean, we should also talk about farmers here in the United States because uh, one of the areas that we've talked about is the new farm bill in New York. Well, in October of last year, farm owners who had their workers unionize at locations that have uh, talked about that we've talked about on the show, like Porpiglia Farms, A&J Kirby and some others filed a lawsuit with the help of the New York State vegetable growers to declare certain provisions in the law uh, that allow workers a uh, legal route to unionization, uh, you know, a contradiction of some sort. And I, I just want to put a note in here about the New York state vegetable growers uh, as the members of this organization uh, almost certainly do not actually have to be people who grow vegetables for sale, but simply just own farms of a certain type. And I'm sure the uh, people who actually grow the vegetables are not actually allowed to be members of this group um, yeah. being the workers. I mean, that actually gets to one of those, I feel like linguistic coups that that the bourgeoisie have over like the English language and the way we refer to things because like, you know, we always talk about farmers, but when they say that they mean the people who own the farms, they're not talking about the people who actually do the work and the reason anything that grows on the farm gets harvested 
or anything like that. It's the same thing, you know, when you talk about like the big three automakers. I'm like, well, the board at Ford doesn't has never made a single goddamn car in their life. I'm like, it's the UAW members are those are the automakers, and so mm-hmm. it's it's this it, you know you point out with this New York State vegetable growers, and I'm sure that's made up entirely of people who are like absentee farm owners. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, like this no. big building I drive by all the time that just says Michigan Celery Promotion on the front of it. <laughs> and I have no fucking idea what's in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's really important that people like kind of push push back on that because the the owner worker like language coup, as you phrased it, is, is really important for us to clarify as people who are on the side of workers. This but happens uh, to- in news about trucking a lot as well. Mm. oh yeah no 100 percent. yeah yeah you never that's a tough one too because of the different gradients because they'll use trucker to mean somebody who's an, an, an a unionized employee of mm-hmm. a trucking firm they'll use it for somebody who's an independent owner operator which is still probably a, a lot of the time a fair way to use it but then they'll use it for somebody who owns is mm-hmm. like a broker for a, a small stable of, of quasi independent operators yeah. or to somebody who like owns a gigantic trucking firm and and it's like only a couple of those are actually truckers yeah Yeah, definitely but but back to the lawsuit uh they're trying to present the argument that contract law for h2a workers and union workers are in conflict with each other and so here's a little quote from the filing courtesy of alex press via jacobin quote Collective bargaining cannot apply to temporary agricultural guest workers on H-2A visas because their terms and conditions of employment are governed by specific time-limited contracts required by federal law. Uh, And, quote, additionally, the act contains an impermissibly broad definition of employee that has been interpreted to include workers present on term limited visas. These workers are not employees, but instead perform temporary services pursuant to limited government contracts. End quote. Oh. They're not employees, folks. They just have contracts. But pray tell, what kind of contracts are they? <laughs> <laughs> Would they happen to be this is just a guess. Employment contracts. <laughs> no, no, of course not. No, they're providing services. They're service contracts. This is, I hate this shit so much because like <laughs> you cannot read this. You cannot be a serious person and read this and come away genuinely telling me you believe this is an argument made in good faith. And that pisses me off so much because these people get taken seriously. This is one of those times where, like, I really envy Stalin's ability to go through a book and just (laughs) annotate gibberish. Nonsense. Balderdash. (laughs) (laughs) Just circling the whole thing and just writing, no. (laughs) Because this is is absurd. But I do think the important thing to me, though, that I, I think, really to take is not just this how stupid this argument is or the fact that they you know we because we talk all the time about the way that there are so many parts of u.s labor law that are written specifically to create all of these loopholes for to allow bosses to get out of things like minimum wage benefits safety protections everything so that's obvious here too but i think the important thing here really to focus on though is like the thing with the h2a visas 
because obviously, yes, we, we think people on H2 A visas should be able to unionize just like any other workers for sure, obviously. But I think it's like what this speaks to though, is it's revealing what is the real purpose of those programs? Because what they're really saying is they're like, Hey, 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 we wanted to hire those people so we could exploit them. Mm-hmm. You can't just let them have unions. That's that gets rid of the whole point of this program. <laughs> You exactly. stop screwing it up. <laughs> hey, you mm-hmm. put a star on that Sneech's belly. That's not allowed. That's a little Dr. Seuss reference. <laughs> yeah, well, the, uh, the lawsuit on top of all that argues that seniority could force growers to rehire guest workers even if domestic workers are available, which would violate the H-2A program's requirements. It also takes issue with card check, characterizing this provision as a denial of workers, quote, right to a secret ballot, end quote, <laughs> which is more like a requirement of a second election and more delay. I love it when they say we have a right to things. I mean, ever since right to work, it's just like uh-huh. I just brace myself for when employers or, or uh, legislators say that workers have a right to something because I can't wait to find out that it's a right to fall through a trap door into a pit full of alligators or something. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's it's all the same shit. It's oh, right to work really means right to be fired for no reason. Mm-hmm. Right to religious freedom means the right to be discriminated against. And now apparently the right to a secret ballot means that if a bunch of you and your friends are like hey we want something and we all openly agree about it that no one's allowed to listen like (laughs) yeah well well, and also i i really think it's important to as we pointed out many times to just say that it's just the pushing of a requirement of a second election Uh there is an election that happened when they all signed cards but That, that that's the reality I also think importantly, because like I, you know, I know I made my point about H2A visas a bit jokingly, but like it really is important for unions just like I know the UFW is working on this incredibly hard. Like this is their fight. But like this is something that every union should be involved in because fundamentally, what is one of the ultimate goals in any structure of society by the capitalist ruling class? It is to create a subaltern class of workers Mm -hmm. who can be pitted against everybody else and held up as an example of you don't want to fall into that situation. Do you like, Mm -hmm. and that's the goal. Like, you know, we, they had it with slavery. They have the same thing with the oppression of black workers and it's couldn't be more clear with agricultural workers. And that's why it's so important for our workers organizations to fight, to eliminate those sorts of walls that are put up between migrant workers between and, and, and quote unquote domestic workers and undocumented and documented workers and all those things. Because all of those distinctions just serve to divide us from each other and weaken all of our bargaining positions. And so that's why like the fights like these that the UFW are, are, are doing are so critically important. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. it all comes down to that comic where the lady looks at her son and she points at the janitor sweeping things up on the street and she's like, you don't want to end up like him. And then everyone flips it and they're like, you know, well, why not, mom? He provides a good service to society, an important service. How much does he get paid? It should be more, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, on top of all of this, surprisingly, the Department of Ju- Justice said in regards to these this, these lawsuits, quote, nothing about the state law that requires agricultural employers to collectively bargain with representatives of employees, including H-2A workers, conflicts with the requirements or objectives of the H-2A program, end quote, basically saying, hey, there's you're actually full of shit, uh, which is kind of surprising. <laughs> yeah, DOJ isn't is, really good about that stuff usually. <laughs> no, no, and I, I think that the thing that is going to really piss people off is the next part of this story. Because since the filing back in October, the state's attorney general has has decided to stop the enforcement of the farm union law altogether. That's right. Some assholes can just file a lawsuit about one provision of the law and the whole thing gets put under an injunction. And because of this, the state's labor board has also stopped processing election filings and ULP charges related to farm work. Very cool. I love to be able to just throw a big tantrum and get the the law thrown away. Like by like six people too. That's the other thing. Like it's not like this is a a democratic upswell against an unjust law by the majority of people against, you know, an unrepresentative parliamentary body or something. It's like this is just a bunch of rich assholes throwing a tantrum. Right, and I'd be really surprised. We talked about the uh, the filing against the NLRB if there wasn't, you know, the possibility of an injunction. Just like because really, what that would be is like, oh, there's a fu- there's a thing saying the NLRB is against the law. Uh, therefore, this injunction is going to stop all right. NLRB shit altogether, all across the right. country. It's the exact exactly. same thing. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Yeah, no, that's it. That is a good comparison for how absurd that is. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, United Farm Workers Communications Director Antonio De Liora Bruce told Alex Press, quote, workers and not just H-2A workers are now waiting in real time and they're exposed to retaliation. Our biggest demand is while the court case works itself out, do not put these farm workers rights on pause, end quote, which is a pretty reasonable request. Yeah. I, I mean, like, it, I find it to be so absurd that they just put the whole thing on on pause. And so there is also some very real problems because workers are facing retaliation for organizing. In some cases, unobtainable quotas are being used to basically not invite workers back follow, in following years, including people who are on bargaining committees. Oh, yeah. Big so, fucking surprise there. You're on the bargaining committee. Hey, your quota just got tripled. Yeah, or what the I think one of the examples in the article was that there was a bad year, and so Mm -hmm. all of the apples were very small, and so it was much more difficult for people to actually fill the bushels that they would need and meet the weight requirements, and therefore, because of those natural conditions, they didn't meet their quotas, and the farmers are using that as a way to, you know, say that, you know, you can't come back now. And then, I mean, additionally... I mean, even if the bargaining committees were still allowed to stay, all bargaining has been halted because employees have refused to come to the table while the law is on hold. Just yet another repercussion of this bullshit injunction. Um, The case itself is going to be heard by a conservative judge on February 21st. And so we will see what happens there. But uh, I, I mean, like the article made 
point to say uh, this is a Trump appointed judge. And so we really do not know what is going to come down in this ruling. Yeah. So. <sighs> it's fun. It's fucking sucks. It's just it's just fucking terrible. Like anytime farm workers want to organize, there's just all sorts of attacks. And I mean, this is just a, a brand new example of all of that. Yeah. And look, if I wanted to be able to put a nice little optimism cherry on top of the end of every story, I would have done a clip show about funny dogs and cats. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Well, you know, I mean, hey, if we don't necessarily have the happiest bow to put on that, we do at least have a good story to follow it up with, mm-hmm. <laughs> which That's is true. Uh, a ton of workers with a pretty cool show of force that happened uh, this past week because... Uh, In a massive demonstration of unity this past Tuesday, uh, flight attendants at airlines across the country took part in a historic worldwide flight attendant day of action with 100,000 workers taking part in pickets at major airports to protest their low pay and poor working conditions. Uh, You know, we've talked a few times on the show about the labor struggles of of flight attendants, but this is definitely the the biggest uh, single day of protest that I've seen. And, and, you know, as reported by Michael Sonato at The Guardian, uh, the picket lines hit airports in just about every major U.S. city, including, Jim, this is just a small group, New York, L.A., Chicago, Boston, Dallas, Atlanta, Las Vegas, and basically every other major airport. Yeah, just a small group. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and and so and that's because a a super majority of all flight attendants in the United States are currently locked in contentious negotiation with the airlines for their first new contracts since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Uh and wages have stagnated while airlines, you know, obviously took a big hit in 2020, but very quickly uh, after recovered their massive profits the same way every other company is doing it through enormous price gouging combined with systematic understaffing. And so, you know, in the wake of that, this organizing effort has united flight attendants across multiple different airlines, including United, uh, American, Southwest, and several regional carriers across different unions. In a statement, the workers said, quote, Legacy sexism that traditionally devalued our jobs must be stamped out and replaced with the true value of our work. Our time on the job must be compensated. We need retirement security, and we need flexibility and control of our lives, end quote. And speaking to those conditions, I, I mean, one of the, the big issues here is that Real wages, you know, when you compare to inflation for flight attendants, have stayed shockingly flat over time. Mm-hmm. Like one of the workers that that Michael Sonato talked to in in that that article, Doris Millard, who has worked for Air Wisconsin for forty four years, says that her wages have essentially stayed the same the whole time. Wow, and she's now effectively living in poverty in her sixties because of it saying, quote, with the wages that we have, it's just unsustainable. We can't live off of these wages, end quote. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Literally any wage you could have made working for a living 44 years ago would not pay any bills now. I mean, Mm -hmm. none. Uh, You couldn't afford to live anywhere in the country. That's staggering. I mean, it's shocking when you hear that somebody's wages haven't improved in 10 or 15 years. I don't know. Forty-four years is longer than I've been alive by a good margin. Well, and to be clear, like it's it's real wages. So I like, know, but it, still, like, <laughs> no, yeah, I, no, it's it's horrible. Uh, 
And so that, and well, but, and it speaks to one of those contradictions of the labor market for flight attendants, which is, as we've talked about in the past, is governed by the incredibly anti-worker Railway Labor Act, which I'll get into in a second. Mm. But, you know, these horrible wages, these awful conditions have led to basically total unity amongst the workers as far as, as really wanting to fight for a big boost in their next contract. And so we've seen overwhelming strike authorization votes by flight attendants at basically every airline <laughs> with over 98% voting in favor at American Southwest and air Wisconsin in just the last six months. And just this past week, Alaska airlines flight attendants joined them voting to approve a strike by 99.5%. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, which uh, rocks and also is another step forward towards one of my yearly predictions. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. Well, we, <laughs> so, yeah, more recently we had a 99%. So now we just have a 0.5% margin to close out. Yeah. So, um, and this unity uh, across airlines and unions shows, you know, just how much conditions have, have deteriorated across the board and how the four major na nationwide airlines have used their monopoly position to continuously downgrade the quality of air travel for both customers, but also for workers in pursuit of maximum profit and being continually bailed out by the capitalist state every time they either screw something up horrifically, like uh, Southwest's gigantic computer crash last year, or when there's some sort of, you know, giant global pandemic that temporarily nukes their business. Uh, you know, maybe just saying that a nation, nationally critical transportation network is something that should maybe just be a provision of the state but mm. you know, I don't yeah, know. Cra maybe wild idea, but, right. um, <laughs> but yeah, unfortunately though, you know, at the same time as we have those massive strike authorization votes, we do have to remind folks that unfortunately, because, uh, planes are apparently railroads, uh, flight <laughs> attendants labor is hemmed in by the railway labor act, which outlaws strikes outside of extremely narrow circumstances and requires you to go through round after round of mediation and cooling off periods only to then eventually maybe after the course of about a year be able to potentially strike at which point congress will almost certainly step in and say oh no you can't so mm. but oh, that being said your, and also split your bill with the benefits on one side and the stopping you from striking on the other so they can vote down the benefits right but the thing is that's the legal process. And as we've seen from plenty of other stories, especially teachers, you don't have to follow the legal process necessarily. Ooh, and if you have, and if you have total unity, like the flight attendants clearly do, it's a lot easier to go outside the law. And so, you know, I don't think we should necessarily write off the possibility of a, a strike by one of these, you know, airlines, like potentially Alaska airlines. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, this is also comes in the wake, you know, these, this struggle and these negotiations of the contracts that we've, we've been following that have been won by the pilots unions, where the pilots unions, because of the relative scarcity of their sort of labor, have been able to leverage that position, even against the monopoly position of the four major airlines into some pretty huge wage gains. And so now, obviously, the flight attendants are really pushing to be like, look, you guys have come out with huge profits and we're sitting here making the same basically wages that people were making in the fucking eighties. And it's time to change that. <laughs> so 
you know, I think that there is a distinct possibility of a wildcat strike this year, uh, even if it is is a ways off. And so the next bargaining session with the federal mediator is scheduled for March 19th. And I definitely do not think this is going to be the last time we talk about a major action by the flight attendants, even just this spring. Oh, hell yeah. I can't wait to see the picket signs. Do I look like I ride a train to you? <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, Well, moving on to a union that gets talked about a whole lot on this show because they've got their fingers in a whole lot of different pies. uh, And this pie is beer and this union (laughs) is the Teamsters. I hope that that makes a lot of sense when it comes out in the edit. Um, So (laughs) workers all over the country are feeling the squeeze of inflation. And as the government continues to pour trillions of dollars into the war economy, our ruling class is gouging workers to the bone with soaring costs of living. For workers with unions, organization is proving the key to fighting back. And last year, hundreds of thousands of union workers won double-digit raises through strikes and militant contract fights to claw back the labor value stolen from them by price-gouging corporations. And this Saturday... Teamsters in Texas became the latest to join that fight. So on Saturday, February 17th, over 400 members of Teamsters Local 997 at Molson Coors in Fort Worth, Texas, walked out on strike after months of negotiations failed to get a fair contract proposal out of the company. In a press release announcing the strike, the union said that Molson only offered raises of less than a dollar per hour for a majority of workers. Cost of living has increased over 20% in the last few years, and $1 per hour comes nowhere close to making up for that. The Teamsters, meanwhile, have pressed for wages that rise above inflation and to eliminate the company's tiered health care and retirement benefit system. I love that. I love that the Teamsters see tiers and they're like, is that a fucking tier? <laughs> Get it out of here. <laughs> I also just like, really? You're going to offer people in 2024? You're going to be like, yeah, we'll give you Oh, here's your raise. Here's a dollar. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's your serious offer? Well, it's just like in the new season of um, Abbott Elementary when Quinta goes to work for the district and she's like, does it get a pay raise? And the guy's like, well, it's not much. It's $2. And she goes, $2 is like a million dollars. And it's like, <laughs> it, you know, it's a fucked up thing that so many of us feel that way because a dollar, two dollars, these are not real raises. This is not something mm-hmm. that's going to fight the slipping ass economy that we live in in this country, you know? No, so, and it also yeah. really highlights the need for cost of living adjustments because mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. these sorts of things would not necessarily be happening in the first place and that people could be, you know, bargaining for actual raises instead of having to fight for right. what they are already owed. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So last week, local 997 members voted by 93% to authorize the strike, another over 90% strike or authorization vote. And the National Union voted to increase strike pay to $1,000 a week for these strikers to ensure their victory. Workers said they've also been inspired by recent strikes by other workers, including Arlington's massive GM truck plant. Local 997 treasurer Rick Miedema told local news WFAA, quote, it's given our members momentum. It's given them drive. They're seeing people demand their worth and get their worth, end quote. Such a Texas-ass way to describe it, but he's absolutely correct where he's just like, they're seeing people demand it and then get it. And that's pretty well, convincing. <laughs> that's, no, that's a real thing, though. I mean, I like, it, 
I think, you know, anybody who's listened to any of our overtime series on like labor history, like the infectiousness of seeing people like Mm -hmm. be like, oh, wait, no, you can just actually force them to give you more money. Shit, we should do that. I didn't know. Yeah, that's real. I didn't know winning was on the table. Let's try to win. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, because it's like, wait, I thought thought you could. Begging, you know. Well, because no, because I mean, the whole thing is people are like, well, Look, I, I would fight, but I'd fight if I knew I could win. Because it's like, I don't want to fight for nothing and then just get crushed for no reason, which is a completely right. understandable mm-hmm. attitude to have. And so to see somebody come out there and be like, no, you don't have to get crushed. You can actually win. It may be hard, but you can win. And here's actual proof of that. That can be like completely like paradigm shifting. For Absolutely. People. So the refusal by Molson to offer fair raises uh, is especially insulting after the company announced this week that their profits in 2023 were the highest in nearly 20 years. Unsurprisingly, pandemics are good for alcohol companies, claiming six <laughs> years worth of profits yeah. in just one year. Last That's October, wild. the company announced a $2 billion stock buyback for shareholders, <laughs> yet it won't offer the workers who make its entire supply for the Western U.S. more than a dollar an hour in raise. I was just going to say, six years of profit is... In a year and like a dollar is like, yeah. wow, fuck well, it's you, like, Coors. That $2 billion stock buyback for shareholders. Now, obviously, I know this is not like this is only the, the workers at this, you know, uh, this facility in, in Texas. It's not all of their workers in the U.S. But I'm just saying, like, you divide that, like, by those 400 workers. That's like, uh, what five million dollars per worker? Yeah, right. not yeah. that good at math, but it's a lot of fucking money. So, and yet that their offer is a dollar, one dollar per yep. hour, which is you know at a norm at a, for these workers probably twenty five hundred dollars a year. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Padalero, director of Teamsters Brewery, Bakery, and Soft Drink Conference, said in a statement. Quote, Molson Coors put itself on strike by taking for granted the Teamsters who keep the beer flowing and the brewery operating. Workers are fed up with the corporate elite who keep all the profits for themselves and expect the people doing the real work to make the sacrifices. Our members are not afraid to withhold their labor. The taps at Molson Coors will run dry until workers get a contract with the pay and workplace conditions they deserve. End quote. These taps will run dry, and, and the company has struck themselves. Such really powerful language there. I, yeah, I, I mean, it. it's incredible. Like, you know, your taps aren't going to be anything but a fart in the wind until you agree to our demands. You know, like, it's <laughs> it's good stuff. <laughs> hmm Definitely. I believe they have also asked for at least people in the Western U.S., which is what where this facility supplies, to, to boycott Coors products for the time. Um, I don't have the that like just happened the other day. I don't have that in front of me, but I believe that has also happened. So, um, yeah, solidarity with these workers, and that's I just like <laughs> you could offer these people a a great raise and still make ludicrous, unfair, exploitative profits, and yet they they just won't do it. They can't help themselves. <laughs> the greed is just ridiculous. But uh, for our final story, we've got. 
a story that is another one with the Teamsters, but also another one of our sort of, I think, uh, pet issues, which is discussing the many different definitions of the phrase uh, employee owned. <laughs> this this episode has got it all, folks. It's got employee <laughs> ownership. It's got farm workers. It's got the threat of illegal strikes. It's <laughs> like it's got everything. That's right. And so, because, you know, obviously, as a communist labor podcast, you would think anytime we hear employee owned, be like, hooray. Mm -hmm. And certainly we love the intent, but always, unfortunately, have to be a little suspicious based on uh, past experience with that term, because sometimes that label can be a bit deceptive. And there's a story that uh, recently came out of Salt Lake City, Utah, that shows that, you know, employee own doesn't necessarily always mean worker power or even really worker control. But what I think is really optimistic about this story is that that doesn't necessarily you know, have to be set in stone. And it's the sort of thing that you could potentially change. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, this is all revolving around Winco Foods, which is a grocery chain in the Western U.S. that is nominally owned by its employees, which the company proudly touts and puts in giant letters on the sign on the front <laughs> of the store. <laughs> um, and so, but the thing is, Workers only become vested owners and receive shares and some amount of say in the business after an extended stay with the company. Workers told Salt Lake City Tribune that the working conditions at Winco for new employees are so harsh that most workers don't stick around that long, meaning a majority of the employees at employee-owned Winco have no say and face basically the same sort of exploitation that they would in a privately-owned business. And so the way that the system basically works there is that Winco workers start earning stock in the company after they've worked at least 500 hours in their first six months, basically half time, um, and keep earning stock for every year that they work at least a thousand hours. But workers only become fully vested after six years of meeting these criteria. But those who spoke with Salt Lake Tribune said most of their coworkers don't actually stick around that long, and so they never actually become vested in this system and have no say whatsoever in their working conditions. And so one of the key issues that pushed the workers at Winco's South Salt Lake City location to push to unionize, despite the fact that they're, again, nominally employee-owned, was that their hours are constantly being changed or cut without their say, uh, which may sound familiar to any of the stories we've talked about, any of those grocery stores that aren't employee-owned. Um, uh, and also, you know, they're, they're running into the problem of those hours not being equitably distributed because that's the other thing. You know, if, you, if to, be, to qualify for the ownership, you have to reach 1,000 hours in a year, but you don't get scheduled for 1,000 hours, and that's completely outside your control, then you don't get another year tacked on towards getting your shares. And so, you know, now the workers are basically like, okay, look, we have to have some way <laughs> to actually affect this. And the current system that exists, the current structure of supposed employee ownership actually gives us no say unless we're here for six years. So we need another way to influence how things are run. And so the workers turned to unionizing. And so Maddie Jackson, a worker at the South Salt Lake store, told the Salt Lake Tribune, quote, if this company is going to fulfill its promise... Working conditions need to be tolerable so that workers, the people who are presumed to own the store, actually get the opportunity because it's not as advertised, end quote. 
Yeah, and I mean, it, there's always these caveats when it comes to the worker ownership. And I mean, the idea that the actual, like, once they're vested and all that, they actually do have some say in the business is honestly better than some of the, uh, like, mm-hmm. ESOPs that oh, we've sure. talked about. But then the kind of gatekeeping of trying to make it so that like it's hard for people to even get to that point or that the conditions are so miserable that people don't want to because presumably you would want to like that it should be an indictment of the system and a failure of the worker ownership model which is pretty clear and it's really good to see these workers deciding to unionize to say no we should have a say regardless yeah, because they basically said that the, the way the system works now has resulted in essentially the control of how the company is run is is heavily concentrated in a relatively small strata of basically the managers, like the folks who have been there long enough that are all in management. And of course, you understand there's seniority, like that's a that's a principle that functions in any, you know, work organization. But because of how onerous this requirement are is that for the full six years, especially for like, you know, working at a position like at a grocery store where workers tend to have a lot more mobility, like you end up with this, you've sort of, you know, whether accidentally or not, like created sort of this like labor aristocracy there. And so, uh, and so in response, the workers at the South Salt Lake store voted last week to join the Teamsters after a year long organizing effort. And, this isn't just a milestone for being the first union store at the company, which is, of course, a big victory there, but also because it's a union victory in Utah, which is a very anti-union state with just 4% union density. So another reason why this is, is a big victory. And so the state legislature also has, as like many other states around the country, been passing many laws in recent years to chip away at labor rights in the state. So, you know, a lot of reasons why this is a very meaningful victory. And so the freshly unionized workers at the store hope that now through the mechanism of a collective bargaining agreement, that they'll be able to make the working conditions at Winco be what they should be at a store that is so proud of being employee owned, focusing on fair wages, making those hours more consistent and more transparency over who gets ours. And ultimately, again, and this is why I think this is such a positive story, is that like, while there's a lot of problems clearly with the way the employee ownership system works at Winco, as you were kind of alluding to, Lena, like it's it's it, it seems like it's more a matter of degree because it's like there is still a mechanism for employee ownership. It's just not functioning in the way that really is fair. Right. And so by having this countermeasure of the union there to push for the workers who are short timers or, or who have been there for less time, you have the ability to change that. And so that's ultimately what the union drive is really focused on, making employee ownership at Winco a reality instead of an empty promise. Yeah, really just like an expansion of democracy, which is so important in order to actually really stand up for, like you said, they they put, they put employee owned on everything. I mean, that should really say, oh, this is a democratically run business. Well, mm-hmm. now it's a little bit more so that. Well, it's kind Absolutely. of like these unions are operating in the same way that I think uh, socialists operate within liberal societies, which is they say like, hey, it turns out that you're lying when you put these little advertising slogans all over everything that say that they're, you know, fair trade and equitably sourced and employee owned. And it's like, how about instead if you stopped lying, we just (laughs) forced you to make all of that stuff actually true. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Which rocks. Yeah. And you know what else rocks? The meme review. That's right. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> so, something like rocks, uh, I guess uh, acorns, maybe. Uh, this is this first one is a SpongeBob meme, the classic, uh, you know, Patrick, SpongeBob, and Squidward, where Patrick, uh, or no, I guess it starts with Squidward, uh, where Squidward says, I'm a cop, thank me for my service. And then Patrick goes, What does that mean? And then SpongeBob said, says, It means he's afraid of acorns. And then Squidward gets angry and says, I have to get back to my family <laughs> and then patrick goes oak trees and then spongebob's like stop it patrick he'll unload a mag into his car and there were uh, so this, many acorn memes this week yeah this comes from a video i'm i most people have seen it but if you haven't basically an acorn falls and hits a cop's vehicle as he's walking back he does three barrel rolls and then like shoots at his car like literally actually i think hitting the person who he has arrested in the back of the car incredibly not killing anyone genuinely after watching the video i was stunned to learn that no one was killed (laughs) yeah just like and just unload like when they when he says unload a mag like it is like pulling a pistol trigger as fast as you can (laughs) guy watched those movies where uh somebody like hits the back of their gun to make the trigger fire faster and he's like i bet i could do that yeah Yeah. (laughs) fanning the hammer wow you know it's funny that that's existed for so long but uh tetris nerds only figured out the rolling technique pretty recently Uh, that's a little Tetris joke for everybody. <laughs> our, our next meme comes to us from uh, The Simpsons. We're going cartoon mode in this meme review. That's right. Uh, so this is um, Troy McClure. Would not, be a, uh, would not be a podcast made by millennials without Simpsons references. SpongeBob's and The Simpsons. Classic that's yellow, true. pre-Minions yellow guys uh, shows. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going all the way back to uh, Woodhouse from Charlie Brown, but... Um, so this is uh, uh, Troy McClure. I keep wanting to say Kent yes. Brockman. That's not correct. Troy McClure dressed up as a cowboy talking to a young boy who is in a field at some kind of combination desk chair eating a steak. And he says, you need to separate the art from the artist. And the young boy responds, oh, so I should put aside my enjoyment of a fictional piece of media so I can hold the real actual person accountable? Uh, to which Troy replies, no, not like that. The other way, the way that still makes people money. (laughs) (laughs) And I brought this one in because I thought that this was uh, something to to discuss at least a little bit. I figure maybe y'all have some opinions about this and that like uh, it's so often that people want to just excuse the behavior of terrible, terrible artists. Well, it's like this. It goes both ways. You know, if somebody says, hey, look, I want I want to be able to appreciate Philosophem by Burzum because I'm capable of separating the art from the artist. It's like, OK, well, then you should also be happy that he's like. In, is he still in jail? I don't think he is. Uh, you should hope he goes back to jail. <laughs> you know, like as long as you're capable of that, then like, yeah, you can listen to the incredibly problematic man's like shitty record. I really don't give a shit. <laughs> mm, yeah, I just I don't know. I just think that uh, it's just there's so much apologism. This this kind of denial of of like making of like profit still going to these people. Like as like what I guess in your case, as long as they're still steal as they're stealing all of the content. Well, yeah, that would be fine. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I it, there's there's a certain <laughs> like weird. I don't want to get into the consumer prescriptivism where I'm like, you need to research every artist and steal their stuff if they're not a good person because that leads down like a weird well. But when the case is quite obvious, like it's totally reasonable to 
speak up and be like, hey, I know that that like song is good or that movie is good or whatever, but that person is a piece of shit. It's worth having a conversation about because like something people aren't aware of. Like, you know, I love that 70s show, but I'll be the first to list off the crimes of Danny Masterson. Mm. <laughs> I think just honestly, I, the number one thing that would improve the this uh, seemingly endless debate uh, would be if the people stopped taking uh, would people need to stop uh, like their media preferences being their identity. Oh, so true. Because the number of people who get defensive when you're like, Hey, the person involved with this thing was shitty. It's like, that's not saying you are shitty because mm. you listen to the thing, but everybody did. There's so many people, not everybody, but there's so many people who just immediately reflexively do that. And it's like, you you know you don't have to identify with them. Yeah, a person, you just like the thing. A personality is how you act, how you talk, what you do, <laughs> the influence and the vibe that you give off to people. What you see on a screen willfully is such an infinitesimally small portion of that that people just yeah. parade around like a totem of themselves. Yeah. yeah. Well, and but, I guess continuing uh, discourse, we have another one in the next meme. It's discourse club. <laughs> yeah. Well. So here's our, our, our questioning the, the viability of anti-politics meme, which is we got a couple frogs, uh, a, the foundation of any good meme. Um, <laughs> and you start with one of the frogs. Does it feel like it's getting warm? They're, they're in some water. Does it feel like it's getting warmer to you? And then the other frog, I don't like to talk about politics. And then it zooms out and they're in a big pot that's boiling. And then it zooms back in on the first frog, just like staring. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're right. Yeah, because uh, anti-politics is uh, very much so bullshit, especially like when this is maybe um, kind of a like a climate reference almost. Mm -hmm. Climate oh, no, or inflation exactly or I mean, there's any number of things. The, the backsliding of all of the various social rights that we've been apparently temporarily granted in this country. Um yeah, I mean, well, you can analogize it to all those things, but it's it's it's, it's, it's rather literal on the yeah, climate sure. change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, save this meme and uh, drop it places where people say they don't want to talk politics. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of saving memes, uh, we have another Simpsons meme that uh, is a throwback in many ways. Uh, this is two different ancient memes smashed together. <laughs> so uh, you have Abe Simpson doing the style at the time thing, but it's surrounded by a white line a white box inside of a larger black box because uh, it's 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 the despair poster format mm -hmm. yeah it's the uh <laughs> demotivational uh poster yeah, uh format and it has the um big serif text under it and it says so i formatted my meme like this which was the style at the time <laughs> i can't wait until in like Six months when people are making meta memes about like deep fried memes as if those are old when they were like from five years ago. Oh, yeah. Oh. I mean, shit. When there's going to be like 30 year old Zoomers walking around and they're like, remember when we put E on Lord Farquaad? God, what a good time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I brought this one in because there was a little bit of, uh, you know, people feeling old in the memes channel mm -hmm. in the Discord. And also, I thought that, like, since this is actually very much so a meme format uh, from our younger years, I, I thought that maybe we would all feel a little bit of, of something in regards to this meme format. Oh, yeah. Demotivational posters came right after lolcats. And if you remember lolcats, you probably are worried about your retirement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
yeah that's uh that's actually true i also whenever i see the demotivational poster one though i always think of the darth vader in the ocean pouring a brita filter into in, into the ocean or whatever e- it explain is explain this image you can't yeah, <laughs> that was one that the, I always think of. That was the level of memes we were on at the time. Or the guy holding the sewing and now, machine and now on that's the sidewalk. Just, and now that's what every single AI-generated image looks like. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Damn. Uh, and well, we only had to kill a third of the rainforest to produce it. Wow. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, not unrelated is our last meme, which is actually meant to be uh, on our more wholesome side because it was Valentine's Day this past week. And so there were some Valentine's memes that went around. This is a spray painted heart on the on. I'm I don't know. Is it on a piece of wood or maybe maybe on a wall? Public surface. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, in the heart, it just says, will you free my Palestine? And uh, yeah, another one of those ones where I go, you know, I just liked it. I wish I had thought of that. I mean, it's honestly, uh, it's correct, and it highlights an important issue. But also, by God, it's pretty fucking clever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Good stuff. Yeah, love it. Uh, Yeah, so Free Palestine. And uh, that's where we're going to leave it for this episode. We want to thank everyone who supports us. And if you would like to support us in the only way that we receive any funding for doing this show, you can go to patreon.com slash workstoppage and you get access to all of our overtime content. We're about halfway through our series on women's labor history in the United States. And it is just loaded with so many important and interesting stories. So get that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. You can also jump in the discord to come hang out with us, write us a review somewhere. It definitely helps. It, it definitely helps to have people find the show, you know, regardless of what we said at the beginning of the show and, you know, follow us in all the places. Links are at workstoppagepod.com. Listen to beep, beep, let us listen to red game table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest and solid. Solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. Ah!